From EAB, I'm Matt Pellish, and this is Office Hours, the weekly podcast addressing education's most pressing issues. The past several weeks, we've discussed everything from a global pandemic, the resulting economic downturn, and the social political unrest in the country. On this week's episode of Office Hours, we welcome two of EAB's student success experts, Misi Fairfax and Ed Vennett, to talk about equity gaps in higher ed and the disproportionate impact these events have had on the lives and educational outcomes of minority, first-generation, low-income, other at-risk student populations. They'll also share how their lived experiences as a black woman and a white man, respectively, influence their views on equity gaps in higher ed, as well as the actions they've identified through years of research that university leaders can take to help these students on the path to a degree. Thanks for listening, and welcome to Office Hours with EAB. Hi, this is Ed Bennett. And this is Misi Fairfax, streaming from DC. Yeah, we're here today to talk about equity and student success and how it relates to the pandemic. Um, And we thought it was important to start off because we are gonna be talking about equity to disclose, I'm a white man. And I'm a black woman. So we're gonna be uh, interested in having a conversation with each other across the course of this, um, viewed through our own lenses and our own shared experiences, our own lived experiences, I should say. as it pertains to this question, but also uh, through our roles working as student success researchers uh, here at EAB and what we've been learning about equity and success for the last few years, uh, but especially during the pandemic. So that'll yeah. be our topic for today. Absolutely. And Ed and I have had a variety of conversations over the last few years um, regarding this issue. And so I'll kick it off just to ask um, a question that's kind of on the top of everyone's mind. You know, we know all the usual models out there to project uh, to project fall enrollment are kind of out the window, and for obvious reasons. So, uh, what are some of the data sources that folks should be looking at right now to get a better source of who actually will come back to campus this fall? The number that I look at the most that I really like is the um, uh, National College uh, Access Network. I think they changed their name recently. The That's ASP right, Attainment Network. Mm-hmm. National College Attainment Network, NCAN has been tracking FAFSA renewals. And those are down. Um, they're down a few percentage points and they're really down for students who are Pell eligible. Uh, so that sort of bridges our, our first equity conversation right here today uh, to talk about that. Um, the overall national numbers are down in a little over 3%. And I think for Pell eligible students, it's closer to 5%. Uh, and what this is telling me is that it, while it's easy to register, it is more difficult to fill out the FAFSA. Uh, it just takes more time. So if students are maintaining optionality, they're doing the easy thing, not the hard thing. Until they do the hard thing of actually applying for financial aid money, um, we can't really count them as in the class for the fall. So that's the, get back to the original question. That's one of the equity indicators, or sorry, the uh, uh, continuing student indicators that I, I trust the most. Well, that's interesting because um, when we look at FAFSA renewals, I, we know that there's usually a big push for them to initially complete the FAFSA. But in terms of the renewals, have colleges talked about what they're doing there in supporting students to make sure that those get completed? Yeah, so that's a great question as well. Um, For those of you who aren't as familiar, the FAFSA, of course, is the free application for federal student aid. Uh, You have to fill it out to get any kind of uh, financial aid, really, uh, from the federal government, inclusive of the loans, Pell Grants. Uh, A lot of institutional aid is also keyed on that as well and you need to renew it each year. So if you fill it out once as an incoming student, you still have to fill it out again and again uh, as your financial situations may change each year. 
So this is something schools handle differently. Some schools want to do a lot of FAFSA renewals uh, as soon as possible in the spring semester uh, for the fall as soon as they open up. Um, others won't really push their students to do it until uh, you know maybe later in the spring or summer. The key here though is it's not always easy and there's a lot of steps in the financial aid process, uh, particularly if you don't have a lot of experience doing this sort of thing. So where st schools might get, or students might get tripped up is in things like accepting, um, you know, signing the right forms. Uh, there's a promissory note. Sometimes they get flagged for verification. That's a confusing process. Uh, so the best thing schools can do is really, really closely monitor which students seem to not have, be having their financial aid hit their accounts, meaning they might have balances that are open or they might be at risk for being dropped for non-payment. Uh, and then explore with those students, reach out to them and try to figure out why. A lot of the time it is because something got gummed up in the financial aid paperwork process. Uh, and again, the uh, less likely it is that you quote unquote know what you're doing here. If you are um, a first gen student who can't rely on their parents who have done this sort of thing before, um, or maybe if you're just on your own, you know, trying to do this and fill out a, a fairly bureaucratic uh, form from the federal government, it can be confusing. You don't know how it works. But if there's people on your campus, and there should be in the financial aid office or in advising or anywhere else that can guide a student through this very complex process, um, those people should be deployed in full force right now because we do want to make sure that as many students can get their aid and can get back to school as possible. Um, we always want that, but even more so this year because can't afford to have a single student not come back who wants to uh, because of you know a logistical problem or administrative problem like a paperwork issue associated with financial aid. So we talked about one, so that's one data source, right? So what's a couple of others that folks should be taking a look at? Yeah, I mean, there's a, a, a lot of indicators out there for different things. Uh, you and I recently wrote a blog post about this. Maybe I can ask you a few questions about that. Um, looking at uh, indicators that are especially equity related. Um, because if we look at these numbers and we say, hmm, okay, continuing student enrollment, even if it's down 4%, in the fall. That's not great, but it's not the end of the world. But if you dig a little bit deeper, there's a lot of uh, indicators that actually what's hidden with that is a lot of nuance saying, well, which students might not be coming back? Uh, and there's a quite a bit of concern that it's going to be uh, really what we consider to be our three big equity populations that are going to have the hardest first time. We have students of color, Pell eligible students, uh, and first generation students. And of course, there's a lot of overlap between those groups. Um, well, so we did a little bit of research into different uh, different indicators that might tell us what's going on with these populations, and uh, well, it wasn't looking good. You know, none of these things are precise. We encourage schools to run their own numbers uh, to see how their different populations are faring. Um, but we can walk through a couple of the things that we found. So, I know, Nisi, what was your what was the one that stood out to you the most from that from that uh, blog post that we wrote? Um, well, so I, I think it's, it's tough, right? But I would probably start with community infection rate, right? Yeah, um, with everything that's happening with COVID-19, very quickly, everyone saw the disproportionate impact on our communities of color. Um, and what we found, there's even more studies coming out, um, even past uh, when we actually pu published our blog post, that 11% or even up to 15% of African-Americans, Blacks, know someone who has died as a result of COVID-19 versus as low as two or maybe 1% in whites. Yeah. So yeah. we're seeing the dramatic impact that it's having on those communities at a, at a point where now we're talking about, um, and I think this is kind of the right point to talk about the 
racial strife that we're having as well. Mm-hmm. Um, folks have talked about the duality of the pandemics, but honestly, I feel it as it's, it's threefold at this point. We're talking about the health risk, we're talking about the financial risk, and we're also talking about the racial implications of inequities that we have yet to fix within our country. I do want to get to George Floyd and the ensuing protests and conversations that have been happening. Um, but let's let's put a pin in that for just a second and go back to the other thing you were saying about yep. unity infection rate just in general. Mm-hmm. Um, for the listeners, help help walk through what that might mean uh, for a student. So, you know, you and I had several really interesting discussions about this, about what kind of psychological impact, financial impact, social impact um, that students might be feeling if they are in a community with a really high infection rate, or they did know someone who got sick or even someone who died. Uh, unpack that a little bit. So like, how do you see that as, uh, what are some of the specific things we should be mindful of and watchful for, I guess, as we go forward to the fall, as we see the impact of, of this, uh, you know, again, the, the community infection rate? Absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, well, I think the, the largest part is we can't underestimate the psychological toll of this. Um, we're folks who we have to realize that many of our students of color and many of our low-income students are in multi-generational households, um, mm-hmm. maybe frontline workers. So a lot of them, depending on the choices that their college or others may make, uh, may find that they it's hard for them to make a decision because they have to think not only of themselves, but of their larger impact on their communities, uh, potentially if they could spread the disease or if... Um, if they don't take the necessary precautions. I think a lot of folks would say from the onset, um, there hasn't, they've largely haven't been a protected class. Um, So they're seeing this unfortunately at large numbers. When we talk about communities across the United States, um, majority um, black communities, you're seeing sometimes a four to six times the amount of infections and with it, with the deaths. 60% 60% of infections within New York were within the Black community, Latinx community. So what we really have to do here is listen and understand what's happening with our students. Um, we, they may, and many of them have, put their academics on a back burner and are trying to take care of their family in the midst of this pandemic. And I, that's, I think that's something that campus leaders have to always have at the forefront of their mind. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, competing demands on time and mental bandwidth and emotional bandwidth Mm -hmm. uh, in a situation like that. And I think that's something else that we need to, uh, we need to acknowledge, even if the students show back up on campus, are they ready to learn? You know, is this going to be this, this large distraction, which could result in students maybe not making it all the way through the semester. They want to go home um, or being pulled still mentally and emotionally in a lot of different directions as they're trying to do full-time coursework in the fall um, perhaps on campus, perhaps away from, from their home community. Uh, it's definitely something to consider, uh, for sure. Um, let's, let's pivot back then to, to the protests and George Floyd and everything along those lines, because, uh, that's, you know, there's more fuel on the fire, so to speak, as far as, um, the stress and anxiety and whatnot that students, especially from communities of color might be feeling right now. So you got the pandemic and now we got this other thing as well. Um, it's also stressful, of course, for everybody, because this is something we're going through together as a people. Um, so I'm not trying to minimize that at all. Uh, but what specifically do we need to be thinking about for the fall uh, on campus right now 
to continue this conversation in a positive way and also to ensure that our campuses are welcoming environments um, that are giving students fair shots and are um, doing their best to address their own systemic racism. That's a, that's a good question. Um, and this is one I've been thinking a lot about because there's this, we talk about if our students are safe on our campus and I think we really have to take a deeper look at what exactly does that mean, right? Um, there's, there's been talk, right, that for a while and folks wondering about the value of an education. Um, we're not here to kind of have that conversation, but I, there's a sense already in what we've heard from student polling that the students are, weren't so confident in their COVID-9 responses of their campus leaders. And now folks are wondering, right, how are they going to address uh, the racial strife, the health of our community when we do come back? What does that look like? How are they going to make sure that if I do come back um, and my family of many of the indicators that we talk about within our blog um, maybe have lost a job, how are we going to make that up financially to make sure that I can actually attend um, and not be under this financial pressure? So there's a lot of things for us to consider when we're thinking about our students on campus and what they need. And, you know, a lot of um, what Ed and I talked through and, and put into our blog was these considerations of what we have to unpack of what they're facing. The other thing I'll add to this as well is that um, we can't dispute the loss of a job, right? That's, that's traumatic. And we know that many of these students or their loved ones may have lost a job. So we're talking about um, the loss of income and the loss of, again, stability. Um, there's been conversations and, and I don't want to go one too far. Let me pause for a second because there's been so many things, I have to be honest, there's been so many things that have been swirling in my mind in terms of how to make sure that our students are, are um, taken care of because there are so many facets of this that we haven't had to take a look at and that are being extremely exacerbated because of this crisis. Right. Um, I think that we figured out there were four different indicators that we looked at ranging from employment to community health. Uh, we looked at the NCAN FAFSA work um, and uh, student polling itself, you know, what students are saying, indicating they're coming back or not. Uh, and sure enough, in those polls, you see exactly what you just described, which is there's more uncertainty among students of color than there is among the general polling pop uh, for, you know, likelihood to return to the same institution or whether or not there's certainty in doing so. Um, so that's been reflected in those numbers for sure. Um, returning specifically to the question of uh, George Floyd and all of the uh, protests and conversations that have happened uh, in the last few weeks as a result. You know, I'm thinking a lot about how schools need to get ready for this. And uh, mm -hmm. I don't know, I'm going to throw this out there. Tell me what you think of this. I think right. that if someone was to ask me, what do I got to do to get my campus ready for the fall? Mm -hmm. um, I think that you already have plans in place for student protests and demonstrations and things along those lines. You kind of know how to deal with that stuff because you're a college campus. This is what students do uh, in a lot of places. Uh, I think the conversation or the step that's not being taken yet, or maybe is now just starting to be taken by leaders and is long, long overdue, is a really good, hard look in the mirror, looking for instances where, hey, we didn't try to be racist here. This is just the way that the campus is, but we can fix this. So looking at, say, the demographic makeup of the faculty versus the students, if there's a big gap here, this should be addressed um, because 
if our faculty are 80 to 90% white and our students are more like 50% white, then that's a, a mismatch. That's half of our population potentially seeing something or having an, uh, an environment where they might not feel as comfortable learning or feel like they're being treated in a way that is um, equitable by their, by their teachers. That's just one example. Um, but it just strikes me that this is a moment in time and where campus leaders can no longer kick that can down the road. They can't ignore the issue. Um, they can't hide and say, hey, we're, um, you know, we're supposed to be these sort of like more liberal, like forward thinking places, like surely this doesn't happen here. No, it happens everywhere. It happens in your place too. And so you need to take a look at it. This is the moment in time to do it. Um, I don't know what you think about that. Let me just pitch that to you. Yeah, no, I, I wholeheartedly agree. The one of the things I would say, the fact that we're even hearing and having these conversation of conversations about race is because there was a quieting of our society that happened that we could actually hear and see and take in what was happening within our larger nation. And so with that, right, it's given us the opportunity to look in a deeper way at what we're doing across um, across our institutions. So already folks are talking about uh, the defunding and work there with the police, but then it very quickly, you know, I, we had the conversation where we pivoted institutionally. Where do we need to go? Where do these higher education uh, leaders need to take us? And one of the biggest components that been has been talked about for a number of years, but really is starting to get more and more footing is about uh, belongingness. And I think that's something that we really have to, within the higher education space, take on because if a student comes on, and to your point, Ed, if they don't see representation within the faculty, if they can't share or talk about their lived experiences in the classroom, um, if they don't even see themselves marketed on in the in the marketing materials or even show them as a, a see others on campus that look like them, uh, we're really diminishing the experience for them. And we're really kind of showing whether intentionally or not, um, we're basically lowering and saying that we don't think that it matters to have representation where everything in research would tell us otherwise. Um, so I think, you know, I am very kind of excited and reinvigorated because it sounds like more folks are taking a look at that, not only within higher education, but also in other institutions with, uh, within the fabric of our nation. And I think that's a very overdue and important conversation for us to have. Yeah, it feels like a moment in time uh, where there was a lot of pent up demand to have the conversation. Uh, then we had a catalyzing moment and now it's all coming out now and we're all uh, talking about things that, like you just said, it's long overdue for these conversations to have happen. And I just, I, I would encourage any campus leaders that are listening right now, you know, this is uncomfortable stuff, but the, you know, the mantra of the day is get, get comfortable with being uncomfortable, so to speak. Mm -hmm. uh, and you have a responsibility as leaders of your institutions to take a good hard look at yourself and say, are we actually offering an equitable experience for our students from a community standpoint, a culture standpoint, uh, or not? And it doesn't have to be deliberately racist to be racist, if that makes sense. Um, it just has to be creating an inequitable environment for students. Uh, and you know, there's, there's just some really tough conversations that have to happen, but once you have them, they become easier and easier and things do get better. Um, but that's some about the character of the campus culture mm -hmm. angles. 
Um, you touched on belongingness, and you know I I'm a big fan. I'm going to put a pigeon <laughs> here for the uh, Nevada Reno um, uh, uh, Fit Program. They have, uh, for those of you who don't know, we profiled this in a couple of our materials. Our colleague David Bevavino uh, did a great write up of this. But essentially, the Nevada Reno, in order to uh, build belongingness on campus, has like a one week pre college program where uh, about half the students do this and they come in and do a one credit pass fail math class. It's aligned to whatever they plan to major in. Um, but it's basically no risk. You know, if you don't pass the class, you just don't get that credit. But it gives you an opportunity in that week to get on campus and like all the butterflies in your stomach start to settle down and you know your roommate and <laughs> you um, can try out what it's like to take a test in college without having to worry about the grades so much. And sure enough, they found um, that when you look at retention rates for the students who participate in the program, uh, equity gaps are virtually eliminated across all different groups. Uh, I think that they uh, looked at first-gen Pell and uh, Latinx uh, compared to their you know, sort of baseline population and found that whoop, across the board, those retention rates were all pretty much equal. So the notion here is that by giving students a chance to come in and practice, they build a lot of confidence and they also build connections with other students. They get mentors, they get connected to other services around campus. I just think it's a really great program. Um, and rem remind me, Ed, because I think this is an important piece, because for many, especially in the minoritized communities, you've seen these pre-college access programs specifically geared towards you. But Nevada Fit is different in kind because it's available to everyone. Is that right? Yeah, and that's a really key, important part of it, because, you know, students know what's up, right? If mm -hmm. you're being if you show up for a free pre-college program and you look around and you say, OK, I understand how we were all recruited to this. Um, it may not, it may actually be counterproductive in the development of confidence and belongingness because you've essentially been singled out. Uh, and something like FIT, being that it is half the campus, does this and it's entirely voluntary. Um, I, do, I do think it normalizes it quite a bit in the sense that it's now like, no, no, this is just the first year of college. It's, we're just getting going a little early. Um, so I think that's important. Uh, I also want to turn to one other thing about belongingness on campus, and that's um, we've done a lot of work on flashpoints. Uh, for those of you who don't know, a uh, flashpoint is when you have an incident on campus. Um, and we've had so many of those over the last few years. Um, schools have been a little bit flat-footed to respond to them. Others have been better. Uh, so one of the things that we've written on recently has been how to essentially prepare, like you would prepare for any bad thing that might happen to your campus. Imagine preparing for a natural disaster. Well, you have a plan in place for that. You should also have a plan in place for this stuff, especially going into, hey, it's an election year. You know, we've got all this stuff going on. The chances of you having something happen on your campus are non-zero, um, but you need to get ready for it. And Misi, you and I have talked about this in the past because you've had some experiences that didn't make you feel all that terribly comfortable on your campus. And we're not gonna name names obviously, but sure. maybe you could underscore the importance of having those contingency plans or those flashpoint action plans in place. So should something happen, very unfortunate, but should something happen, you can respond really well. Um, and why your students might see that is very important. Oh, absolutely. I mean, even though the incident that happened at my first school is now almost 25 years ago, um, it's still, pretty much in the forefront of my mind because the response by the institution uh, was less than lacking. And uh, there's a sense that when you 
folks, you know, when we were in the beginning of getting more diverse students on campus, a lot of it was focused on access. So rightly so, there wasn't the equity and, and inclusion that needs to happen there. Um, but when you get it wrong, um, as they did at the institution I had attended at that time, uh, there was a great deal of us who left after that initial fall semester. And so you can't also say, and I think this is another key piece to talk about when we talk about what leaders can do, uh, and folks have been pushing back in this space just um, just in recent weeks as folks have been coming out and supporting Black Lives Matter, is, okay, now you have the words are out, out there, but what are the actions? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, to, and to Ed's point, right, how do we make sure that we kind of have that intervention uh, response team? We know how to respond to flashpoints, but then there's also the, the piece of this is going to be, and there's been enough conversation out there that this is going to be the new majority. Um, so how do we educate ourselves to make sure that we can support these students? Um, and it doesn't necessarily just have to be this kind of specific programming, but we, when we talk about equity, and I think it's a, a good place to kind of reiterate that, that's, we're making sure that regardless of race, income, gender, everyone has an equal chance to succeed on campus. And we just have to make sure that the right supports are in place and that leaders are removing those barriers to full participation. Yeah, it's very important, uh, especially now as our student body uh, breakdowns are shifting. I was uh, uh, looking the other day at my own home institution and looking at the demographic breakdown of the incoming class, um, and it's 60% either students of color or international, uh, international being about 10%. Uh, and, you know, so it's a very mixed campus now as far as who's attending. This was not the case when I was there, uh, which was a very long time ago, but <laughs> uh, almost almost 25 years, we're about the same age. Yeah. Uh, so... <laughs> Uh, things have changed in that regard. And I think one of the things that's interesting that comes along with that is uh, the generational attitudes writ large for Gen Z about these issues. Um, I recall you were talking about being uncomfortable when there was a flashpoint incident on your campus uh, and how a lot of students of color left as a result. I I think in, if you had fast forward to 2020 and such a thing's happened, you're going to lose students of all ilks. Because they all care deeply about this issue. And if they're, regardless of who they are, well, I'm struck because I remember this one anecdote I read earlier this year about a school that was having some issues. um, And there was, um, I guess, a tour and a high school student was was there. And the student was hearing about what was going on. And, um, you know, they told the reporter, I just don't know if this campus is for me. And that student was white. So it just underscores the importance that for the entire Gen Z population, not only is it far more diverse than any populations we've had coming in before, or sorry to say class years we've had coming in before, um, but also the attitudes of these students are going to be far more, regardless of who they are, expecting that you as the campus know how to do this, or that this is important to you, or that they'll be very turned off if you don't do this correctly. Um, And that's not something I think we would have expected years ago. So that's a big change. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, there's kind of like one last question I want to bring up here. Um, I, and the reason why I bring it up is I know that you and I have different views. Uh, <laughs> so I'm wondering if we can close out with a little mini debate. Um, I think you might already be knowing where I'm going with this. So, <laughs> I might. <laughs> uh, we've talked about why schools need to pay attention to equity and why schools need to be paying attention to student success. And we've talked about them in different ways over time. But you know that I think that there's um, quite a bit of alignment uh, between two of the motivating factors for here. We, 
we all can agree that graduating students is the right thing to do. We can all agree that uh, having equitable outcomes at our institution is the right thing to do. Uh, no, nobody's gonna argue against that. But the quick, big question is, why has it not happened? Why have we been slow to change? And what can we do to accelerate that? And you know, I think that there's a market force at play here. You know, the more students, the more we become dependent upon student tuition dollars, the more we need to be looking at every possible way to preserve enrollment. Um, and if you see your equity gaps as also a uh, enrollment problem, uh, in the sense that you're losing students, then uh, you have double motivation. Now, you have a different view of this because, well, go ahead and explain your viewpoint as well on this and we can talk about it back and forth a little bit. Yeah, and let me know if this is kind of the same place where it's been because I don't know, over these last few weeks, uh, things are, have shifted and I, I've thought about things in deeper and new ways. Yeah. But um, I tend to think about it in terms of, of leadership, right? I tend to think of who do we have at the table who are making these decisions and do they mm. understand our communities? Um, I think of, uh, I think it's the, was it the ask you, um, President Dr. Mildred Garcia, who many of her and her colleagues um, share learned experiences, whether they're first gen, uh, whether they came from a, a poor background or were low income. And so they have this, they already have this lens of which to view the world and to recognize when things are inequitable. Um, so that kind of, that's where I tend to go in terms of what has to happen because We've seen the change. We've seen the numbers go up in certain ways, in some ways go down in terms of participations across uh, Black, Latinx, and Native communities and on our college campuses, but it still hasn't changed. And I, for me, the larger change is that the folks at the top who are making the decisions don't represent uh, the students to whom they serve. Yeah, I think the, uh, I mean, we both have, have philosophies that think that, you know, at least are logically valid. You can choose to ascribe to one, the other, or both. They both have weaknesses, of course. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the ickiness of the way I'm approaching this is that we hate to commoditize students. You know, these are real lives that we're talking about. Um, and I think the weakness on what you're talking about is, well, if it's been about leadership, then what's, why hasn't it happened yet? Like, it's always been about leadership. So are we now more motivated? Maybe, um, I hope so. Uh, are we now more motivated from the sort of bottoms up approach, uh, like I'm talking about where, hey, we need to worry about the financial health of the institution and that's going to cause us to pay more attention to student success than ever before. Maybe, hopefully, hopefully all of the above. Um, mm -hmm. I do agree with you very much so that this is a moment for leadership. Uh, this is uh, challenging, this has probably been the most challenging year for higher education leadership that I can remember, at least starting in the last decade, uh, since the onset of the recession. So. If you are not uh, prepared for or ready for this challenge, then probably need to get so. Uh, but this is a real moment to shine. If you're ready to step up, this is this is an opportunity to really change your campuses. Yeah, and I, I would add, um, this is tough, right? Um, none of us can go at this alone. Um, I, and I wanna reiterate that, right? Because we have to get plugged in. We know that there's issues with funding. We know that um, there's, that it's going to be tighter across the board in terms of what folks are able to spend and how they're going to contain their costs. But I think the larger play here and the larger conversation has to be, how do we engage our employers? How do we engage our alumni? How do we engage our community partners? And this larger change we seek to have within our higher education institutions. Yeah. And that's a really interesting point there too, because you just said community partners, employers, uh, people outside the campus. 
this is something that should become much more of a community oriented issue. If equity gaps continue to exist in, uh, and we continue to need more college educated workers, then there's a natural moment for employers to step in and say, hey, y'all got to fix this because we need more graduates <laughs> and we need diverse graduates because that's who we're trying to hire. So, you know, there is a moment in time where something can, it's only really kind of started to happen, can now happen in greater amounts, which is employers kind of sticking their necks into the higher education space in a good way, um, providing funding and sort of providing encouragement to institutions to close these gaps uh, and to sort of get this, this problem fixed. Uh, in that regard. So there's maybe another factor in play here that could be an interesting motivating factor for uh, what could motivate change in the future. So we got kind of the moral imperative. It's the topic of the time. We've got the, there's a, a leadership moment. We've got the economic factors. And then we've got, I guess, other economic factors, meaning the sort of supply and demand of uh, the labor market may compel schools to improve here. Uh, I'm sure there's many others, but uh, they all point in the same direction, which is you have to fix this problem. Uh, it's the it's the right thing to do for so many different reasons, and this is certainly the right time. Um, I wonder if we could close out with just like a couple of quick recommendations for things schools could do this fall. Um, I think you and I jotted down a few mm -hmm. uh, what we would consider to be outcomes. Um, do you want to share a few of what you you had jotted on a few, and then I'll fill in maybe one or two. Yeah. So, um, so the one thing I would say uh, is define equity for your campus, right? So, yes. what does that mean for you? Um, whether you're an HBCU, a PWI, um, just whatever that may mean, I, you need to have clear understanding of what you're trying to move and where you're trying to move the needle. Um, and then the other thing I would say is address belongingness or the bias that you inherently have on your campus. The one thing we would note is that, um, and this is normally where some of that comes up, it would be the kind of campus climate assessments. We know the folks don't do those often enough and there aren't pointed enough questions for them to figure out and to fix what's going on there. So I, I think there's a larger need for folks to dig in and to really understand their campus and the ways it may be um, turning students away. Mm -hmm. my, um, my one that I would add, uh, well, I completely agree with that one uh, for sure. The other thing I would add would be, you gotta start counting uh, if you, are looking at your continuing student enrollment numbers and doing year over year comparisons, that's good, you should be doing that. Uh, I would strongly encourage you if you have the ability to do splits on those numbers so you can see what continuing student enrollment is for your different student groups. So you can spot whether or not you do actually have an expanding equity gap for this fall based on the way registration numbers, to the extent that we can trust them, look right now. Um, because you might find one of two things. Well, you might find a bunch of things. One, you might find that this problem is actually much worse than you might have guessed, or maybe it's not. But an even better outcome would be to find more nuance about where your issues might be. Is it with our Black students? Is it with our Latinx students? Is it more with our rural students or Pell-eligible students? Where do we see our biggest gaps? Because that will be where you can focus your attention over the next few months. Um, specifically along whatever lines those might be. But you don't know any of this stuff unless you actually pull the numbers and review them. Um, and I've um, talked to uh, an unfortunate number of schools that haven't done that work. So I would strongly encourage you to, um, to do that if you haven't already. Uh, if you're pulling continuing student numbers, try to break them down ac across your equity lines um, just so you can see those gaps that may or may not be emerging and, um, and focus your efforts that way. Do you have uh, any other ones to add? 
Um, well, the only thing I would say, right, it's, it's a larger kind of engagement within the classroom. So if folks are still kind of moving and are, are going to stay in that virtual or, or hybrid virtual in the fall, um, I think they have to be very clear about how students can engage and be plugged in. Um, there's been a lot of conversation in the space where students are kind of saying, well, what is this environment and how can I have the student experience online? That's going to be even more critical for um, students of color because they are going to need a bigger sense of, of being plugged in here um, in ways mm -hmm. that they maybe haven't been plugged in, in the, on the campus. So I would say to invest there, whatever those learning communities are, however they can still do a bit of research, the internships or the service learning, I think those are important uh, components that will help stay students plugged in and engaged. I think that's probably a good note to end on right there. Uh, so I want to thank everybody for listening today. Um, once again, uh, I'm Ed Bennett. And I'm Missy Fairfax. And we're delighted to have been able to have this conversation with each other. Uh, as you can tell, we work together pretty close on these sort of things. So it's always fun to chat with you, Missy. <laughs> uh, about you, this. Ed. <laughs> uh, and uh, hopefully um, giving everybody a little window into our chats uh, will move their dial a little bit, or at least um, get them a little bit motivated around continuing students and specifically around equity gaps for this fall. So once again, thank you very much and uh, have a great day. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Join us next week when two close friends and colleagues, Melanie Ho and Carla Hickman from EAB, talk through the five mistakes university leaders should avoid when handling our ongoing health crisis. Until then, I'm Matt Pellish for Office Hours with EAB.